Okay, we are going to look at... We've looked at how to read the whole Bible. In other words, from Genesis to Revelation, how do I understand it as saying one thing? It is one story told by one author, God, through many different authors, human authors. Um, a perfect, perfectly told through imperfect people by God's providence and his spirit, right? All pointing to his word, Jesus. So we've talked about that in one of our lectures. Can I trust, how do, no, can I trust, how do I read the whole Bible? But this is, how do I read, how do I read the Bible? Okay, so if the emphasis is on how do I read the whole Bible or how do I read the Bible on the first lecture, this is how do I read the Bible? Um, emphasis on the word read, okay? So a slight shift here. And let me just, man, I'm going to try to be as concise as I can. I could, this could be a five-hour lecture. And, and again, the idea is we'll give it to you in, these, in an hour or less, um, condensed here as an essential, and then we can expand on I can expand on this. Hey, Taylor, I'm coaching myself. You can expand on this in future lectures. Okay, great. So I want this to be helpful. How, how do I read the Bible? Um, first, let me say you, read it medit- you want to read the Bible meditatively. It's not just information, right? You're meeting with a person, and I'll get to that in point four here. But first point, meditatively. Um, Psalm 1, verse 2, it's the, oh, it's the doorway along with Psalm 2. Never read Psalm 1 apart from Psalm 2. Never teach Psalm 1 apart from Psalm 2. Um, now you may be preaching or teaching and you may, you may not have time to teach them both. You may, but do it, do Psalm two the next week and let your people know they are, um, meant to be read as a, as as a piece. They belong together. Um, Psalm two tells us how to read Psalm one. We know that because in, well, for a lot of reasons, one of them is because, um, Psalm, the beginning of Psalm one and the end of Psalm two have what's called an inclusio or a bookend which is a word or phrase that connects the two, that shows you that they're of a piece. Um, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, etc. That's how Psalm 1 starts. Psalm 2 ends, um, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so um, the blessed man is Jesus Christ. And we can only be that blessed man so long as that blessed man is in us. Okay, and changing us and bringing us to God. So um, that's not my point, though. My point is, in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't do these things. He doesn't hang out with the wicked, okay, lest he become like them. He doesn't approve of them. Rather, Psalm 1, verse 2, he meditates on the word day and night. Um, that word meditates, it doesn't just say he reads the word. A lot of us, just we just read the word. Or we're told to read the word. Sometimes we're told to study the word and we can tend to sort of ask questions and dissect it and open up our commentaries. And that's all fine and good so far as it goes. But here we're enjoying, we're told that the blessed man, he's marked by this first and foremost, that he meditates on the word day and night. That word meditates is, it's an animal word. It's a strange choice seemingly because it it means to growl with a low growl, like a sort of when a lion sort of growls a low, sustained growl. Um, not a roar, but he's kind of, he's kind of um, 
yeah, like when a, when a person growls at you, it's sort of under their breath and they're, are you growling at me? That's kind of, you know, and really, really what it's saying is that you're just, it's a sort of person that is, he's just having a conversation with God, with, through his word, by his words, praying his words back to him in constant converse with God, working through things with God, talking with God, listening to God, praying God's word back to him. It's on, it's on your tongue. You know, the ancients typically did not read to themselves. They read out loud. And um, there are a lot of reasons for that. It's just more effective it's, as, as, as praying out loud is almost always more effective, in my opinion. Um, reading, reading is more effective. More of your senses are engaged. You're hearing it. You're speaking it. And so you are God's word in you. It's your conversation. That's what your word is. Your word becomes God's word. God's word becomes your word. And, you know, that's really a picture of Jesus right there, isn't it? He, he is and was, he was and is the word made flesh. And when he spoke, God spoke. And what came out of him when he was pricked and pushed was God's word on the cross, etc. So um, we read it meditatively. We talk, speak it out loud. We think about it. We sort of treat it like a piece of hard candy, a jawbreaker, a gobstopper. We roll it around in, in, in the mouth of our soul, as it were. Um, like a like a rock tumbler like a like a rock tumbler making gems right we we um, offer it up in prayer to God, we wrestle with it, we let it pin us to the mat um, and that brings me to my third point, not my second point. My second point is that we we read God's word prayerfully um, again, sort of building on that first point, Don Whitney has a book praying praying the Psalms, I think, and, uh, or maybe, maybe praying the scriptures. And just a lot of us, when we think of praying, we think of using our words to talk to God, but using God's words to talk to God is wonderful as well. And just taking a Psalm, let's say, and reading through it and reading through it as a prayer back to God out loud is a wonderful way to read through the Psalms, um, speaking God's words back to him. And it teaches us to pray. So, so reading God's word prayerfully, and oftentimes a lot of my prayers are in my scripture study. I'll just pause and something will hit me and impress me and the Holy Spirit will use something that is in God's word and I'll just, I'll use it to converse with God and talk back to him and think about it and meditate on it. And that's, that's a prayer. Um, you read it thirdly in submission, not just um, wrestling with it, but letting it wrestle you. Um, being mastered by it, not mastering it, not standing over it, but letting it stand over you because it is God's word and God's word is God himself. And so letting it dominate us for our good, right? Uh, faith seeking understanding, fides quorans intellectum, as Anselm said, and maybe Augustine before him. Um, and that is we read it scientifically, right? We, we let it, we don't shape it. We let it shape us. We let, we investigate it, we study it, we meditate over it, we consider it, and we, um, we let it tell us, shape us, and tell us what is real. Um, and that is a scientific way to approach it, right? 
as opposed to manipulating it and having it say what we want it to say. It is the, it is the evidence. Um, and we, um, we let it, uh, we let it speak for itself. We, that's why we talk about exegeting there where we un, we unpack it by opening, you know, the unfolding of your words gives light and exegesis is an unpacking of finding out what does this word really say and making it plain, um, and letting it speak for itself, letting the lion out of the cage to use Spurgeon's metaphor, um, as opposed to making it a nose of wax and having it be like a Thomas Jefferson Bible where we just, we only let it say what we want it to say. And we, we refuse to submit to or to hear or to consider or to live by the things that we disagree with. Well, then it's just going to look like us. Then what we're doing is we're making God look like us. We're making him in our image instead of allowing him to make us in our, in his image. Um, so letting it have its way with us. And Thomas Torrance calls that theological science. In that, and I'm reducing that that phrase. Um, he that's not exactly how he uses it. At least at least uh, solely how he uses it. But so we do it in submission. We do it relationally. So we do it meditatively. We do it prayerfully. We we um, read God's word submissively. We read it relationally. Hebrews four, twelve through thirteen. I should have it pulled up. I don't. Um, but the fridge magnet verse that um, God's word is alive. Inactive, it's uh, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing to very uh, joint and marrow, and revealing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nothing is hidden from His sight, from whom we have to do. You notice from verse twelve to thirteen how it goes from what the Word does; it's alive, it's active, and then nothing is hidden from His sight. And there's, it's just a seamless move from it to his, from the word to God himself. And that's one way that the author is telling us, um, sort, of, sort of in an inductive way, that when we encounter the word, the written word of God, we are encountering God himself as we read by faith through his Holy Spirit and are led to Jesus Christ. The written word leads us to the living word. Um, we read it not just as a data dump. We read it to meet with God and to be shaped by him, to be challenged by him, to be encouraged by him, to be given hope by him, to be lifted to Christ and have our eyes fixed on Christ by him, to be saved by him, to be filled by him, to know him, to be known by him, to taste the sweetness of his presence. No, Lord, your, your word is, how sweet are your words to my taste? Your word is sweeter than honey. I mean, Psalm 19, so beautiful. I've just quoted from Psalm 119, but Psalm 119, um, in finding it, I find great treasure. It's sweeter than the sweetest honeycomb. These are these things are so true. Ezekiel, uh, the word in John, following Ezekiel in the book of Revelation, his word was um, sweet in in my mouth, but it made my stomach bitter, because sometimes his words are hard words, right? Especially if they're words that we have to speak to others, straight and true, can hurt. His word can pierce, dividing to very joints and marrow from Hebrews four, right? So we read it relationally. We read, and I think that might be the most important one, right? Um, <clears throat> which is why we read it prayerfully, because the word tells us about God and leads us to God and leads us into relationship with him, which changes us. But, um, and that in itself is a miracle that's accomplished by the living word, Jesus, where we brought back to God. So um, dep- we read it dependently. Fifthly, we read it dependently. Um, Psalm 119, 18, I've already quoted, but um, the unfolding of your words... Um, no, sorry, that's not. <laughs> Psalm one nineteen eighteen says, um, 
excuse me, Psalm 119, 18. It talks about, I should probably just pull it up right now. I thought I could, thought I could, it's at the end of a day. This is like my fourth recorded lecture. Um, not the unfolding of your word gives light, but the, um, So I'm 119, 18. Somebody look it up for me. I'm not in the class. The uh, Open my eyes, O Lord. There it is. Ha! Open my eyes, O Lord, to behold wonderful things from your law. Open my eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. In other words, and that's, that is just, that Psalm, Psalm 119, longest, I think, chapter in the Bible, certainly the longest Psalm in the Bible, We'll just say that longest psalm, um, 176 verses, amazing, amazing chapter, all about God's word, and just littered with talk like that about how you have to make me know you, you have to make me understand you, you have to open up your word for me if I'm going to understand it at all. Uh, if I'm going to see anything in this flag, it has to be unfurled. If I'm going to be able to enjoy this present at all, it's got to be unwrapped, and it has to be unwrapped by you. In other words, we can't come to the Word on our own terms and just sit down and get anything out of it. It's a miracle. It has to be the Lord. That's why we do it prayerfully. It has to be the Lord who reveals himself to us, who opens it up to us. Otherwise, it's just a dead letter. The Holy Spirit has to illumine the pages of the Word and put those on our hearts, right? Ezekiel uh, 36 um, or is that 34, uh, Jeremiah, um, you know, giving us hearts of flesh. He does that through his word, does that by his spirit. You know, it's otherwise just a dead letter, right? It's not magic. John, um, John 5, 39 and following, Jesus says to the Pharisees, who many of whom had this whole Old Testament memorized or large chunks of it anyway, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it is they that point to me. In other words, I'm the whole point. The whole point of the scriptures is to lead you to me, the living word. And that's, that's something that can only happen as we submit ourselves by faith to the word and, and do it prayerfully and, uh, and know that it's, it's a relational endeavor. And so um, we do it dependently, just depending on God and begging him to, to open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from his law. So um, now let me transition here. Those are just, you know, five things, five brief things. But let me transition to the word seems, S-E-A-M-S. We, we want to, um, one amazing thing about the Old Testament, and I'm an Old Testament, I could even say scholar, I guess, um, student. I, I prefer student. I'm an Old Testament student and, and uh, connoisseur, and I... You've heard it. I've heard it said and love the idea that, you know, the Old Testament is the Bible. Um, Jesus, when and in the New Testament, you know, when he said scriptures and when the New Testament authors said scriptures, they meant the Old Testament. That's the Hebrew Bible. That's the Bible they had. Those were the scriptures. The Old Testament is the, is the Bible. The New Testament is the answer key. What did Augustine say? He, uh, he said, the... Um, in, in the and he, and he made this rhyme in the Latin. It's carried over into the English. The um, the old the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. 
and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Um, but anyway, back to the, the scriptures or the Old Testament, they, it's a tripartite, it's a three-part book, a story of, of, of God uh, making a people for himself and saving a people for himself and bringing them out of slavery into a good land and, and giving them a promise that, that through them, through Abraham and his progeny, he would bless all the nation, all the families of the earth and, and recreate all things. So, um, and Jesus fulfills that. But it's three parts. It's, it's law, it's prophets, and it's writings. And, and the way that it fits together is really cool. This is why I bring up the word seems. Um, the law ends in Deuteronomy, and then the next part, um, the prophets, the second part of, of the tripartite Old Testament, starts with Joshua, the next book. And that's one seam of the Old Testament where the law ends and the prophets, the second section, begins. And in that section, um, okay, so that's one section. And then the next section, the only other section, the only other seam, I should say, of the Bible where the second and third part fit together is where the, prof, the prophets end. And by the way, Joshua is, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, he's um, known as, he's the first of the, of the former prophets. Right? He's a, it's a history, but the former prophets and then the latter prophets are what we tend to think about as prophets. Um, so that's the prophets. And then the prophets end, and the writings, what's known as the third section of the Bible, the writings, the Ketuvim, starts in the Psalms. So at the beginning, at those two seams, the only two seams in the Bible, in the Old Testament, um, the scriptures, Joshua 1 and Psalm 1 are the only two places in the Bible that the, the two phrases, I don't even have them here, so I hope I can remember them. My memory is so spotty right now. Uh, the only two places in the Bible that, that, that the, the two phrases appear that, um, that the man of God is enjoined, in, this, in the Joshua case, in Joshua 1, Joshua is enjoined um, to meditate on the word day and night and if you do, what, you will have good success, and whatever you do, you will prosper. Those two phrases, to meditate, and then whatever you do, will, you will prosper. You'll have good success, you'll prosper. Those two phrases, um, or I could say that scholars use the phrase collocation, that, that collection, that concatenation of uh, phrases in the Hebrew, only occurs in those two places. So, one way to... Th- why do I belabor that? Okay, it's cool. It, sh- it also shows us that there's a flow to the Bible and that it's put together perfectly and that those three sections build on each other, they connect to each other, they're taking us somewhere, there's a driving thesis, and that that driving thesis has to do with meditating on... The key to life is meditating on this word that God's given us and letting him... And it's a way that we get to know him, that we become like him. It's the key to life. Um, but it also, ta- it also helps us to understand, this is why I belabor it, <clears throat> on how to read the Bible. It helps us sort of understand the flow of the Old Testament. Because um, the Old Testament can be confusing, right? With the New Testament, it's like we read the Gospels, then we read Acts and the letters to the church, and then there's this revelation thing, right? which most of us think is to do with the future, but no, most of it's already happened and is to do with the present because we're in the last times and we're in the tribulation. Hello, 
and only the last few chapters have to do with what's, what's to come. But that's a different lecture. Um, the flow of the Old Testament, that can be confusing to people. It seems like a, just a concatenation of books, just a, a collection, a hodgepodge. Well, it's not. <clears throat> um, let me try to break it down for you and make it then simplify it a little bit. So, and I'll tie it hopefully back to this tripartite sort of, you know, law, prophets, writings, okay? Now, think about the first section of the law. And, and, and that's not even a um, felicitous translation. Um, Torah is, is, is what that word in the English law is translating, Torah in the Hebrew. And it really is better translated teaching or instruction. Because think about the law is, stands for the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It tells the story of creation all the way through God's people being brought out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, out of slavery, into being po- through the desert 40 years and then being po- poised on the edge of the promised land. And then Moses dies. And then Joshua, the beginning of the prophets, starts with them being taken into the promised land. Okay? So those first five books, the law or the Torah, the teaching, instruction, it's not all what we think of as law. A lot of it is a story about how everything came to be and how Israel came to be. And that is, it has the force, though, of law. It all has the force of law. And it's all God's word. And it's a foundation stone. But the Genesis through Kings, so the law into the histories, which are the former prophets, um, the Genesis through Kings, so Genesis, in our English Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Now, by the way, the Hebrew Bible, um, same exact books as our Old Te- English Old Testament. Slightly different ordering. Okay. But so Jesus' scriptures, his Bible was the same as your Old Testament, same exact. So take confidence in that. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, um, Ruth, although Ruth is not included in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is in the Bible, he probably in the writings. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Stop. Okay, Genesis through Kings is so that's law into history. Now that is the creation through the exile. That tells you the plot line of God made all things, rebellion, made a, Noah, then made a people for himself through Abraham, all the way through Exodus, through the Kings, through the slide to exile, and then exile. Okay, that's, that's the whole history all the way through the Old Testament. And that's just Genesis through Kings. That's it. What the prophets do, let's move to the next section. You know, so you have Genesis through Kings. That's Genesis through the former prophets. When you get into the latter prophets, the prophets we think about, right? Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, minor prophets. We, there's no new history. There's no new history. And... Um, what, what, what's happening in the prophets is a bunch of things. They're, let me give you a few things on the prophets to help you understand them. One, they are, and we'll probably have a lecture or a series of lectures or classes on just the prophets, but, you know, and maybe each of the prophets. But the prophets are, first of all, the way they're organized, they can be hard to understand, but they are calling a wayward Israel back to God, number one. Number two, they're forecasting the Messiah. But they do that by, three, saying, 
here's the structure of every prophet. Um, judgment. Judgment's coming because of the way you're behaving. And maybe judgment's coming on your oppressors too, the enemies of God's people. But judgment's coming on you because you're terribly rebellious. But also, salvation's coming. And usually the salvation bit that's held out at the, is just held out at the end and it could be very, very short. It's usually judgment, judgment, judgment. Oh, but God's going to save you. And how's he going to do that? Well, it's looking ahead to the Messiah. So the, the, whereas the, the Messiah is whispered previous to the prophets and maybe spoken in a, in a room, in a, normal, um, uh, in, a, in a normal sort of uh, voice that, that would be spoken in, in a room. I can't, even, why, why can't I think of this phrase? Um, in the prophets, the, the Messiah is, is shouted, right? He's shouted. He becomes more apparent. He, he's coming. I just think, about, think of Isaiah. I've done this in the former days, but in the, in the latter days, I'm going to do something totally new. Uh, think of Isaiah, of the, of the servant songs in Isaiah, um, especially 50, chapter 53 of Isaiah, where it's just the, the Messiah is so clearly delineated in his sufferings um, and how he's going to make a people for himself and bring people back to God. Um, I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing a new thing. Okay, so, so that's the structure of the prophets, judgment and salvation, and they, they really forecast Messiah very clearly in a lot of ways. Um, but they're calling God's people back to him, and most of the prophets are rejected. And, um, but what I wanted to say is, as compared to the law and the early, and the histories, the early, pro- the, the former prophets, the, prof- the, the latter prophets give us no new history. I just told you some of the things that they do. But what do they do? They, they give us the inside of what Genesis through Kings gives us on the outside. In other words, they're not giving us plot line. They're giving, they're internalizing how our sin makes God feel. Israel, here's how I feel when you rebel against me. Think about the book of Hosea. I feel like a husband that is being cheated on because of the way that you've rebelled against me and rejected me. I take it personally. It hurts. This gives us a whole new angle. This is Abraham Heschel, by the way, not me, his insight. Um, so that's, think about the Old Testament that way as you read through it. Um, Genesis through Kings is giving you the plot line, the history, what's happening. The prophets are giving or internalizing all this, how it's making God feel. And that really helps us to understand our own condition and also what's needed for our salvation and what Christ came to do and bring us back to more. Now, that's, that's the law and the prophets. And then what about the writings? The writings are Ruth. They don't contribute at all to um, the storyline. Ruth can be a little bit of an exception. I don't know why Ruth, Ruth is included, in, not in the histories. I mean, she's not a, there's no, not a prophet, but she could be one of the former prophets. She's not. But she could be with judges, but she's not. But the writings are Ruth, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalm, the Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. Um, and um, the writings are, lots of them are poetry. Ruth's not poetry. Um, but a lot of the rest of, almost all the rest of the writings are poetry. And it's just a, a variety of things. Think about the Proverbs, ways to live, um, ways to live well. Job is whew, rough. Um, Lamentations, very rough, but poetry and beautiful and a beautiful artifice. Um, and really, you know, talking about the, 
the uh, the exile and and rather J- Jerusalem devastated by the Babylonians leading leading to the exile of God's people. Um, but Psalms is the prayer book of God's people and the song book of God's people and Ecclesiastes is is its own thing as well. Um, but you have Ruth, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations, and that's the writings. And the writings are beautiful, and they don't contribute to the storyline. And then, so that's it. You have you have the law, Torah, uh, better translated teaching or instruction. You have the the history, which is the the former prophets. Then you have the latter prophets. So you have the law, the Torah, the prophets, and then you have the writings. And um, then you have the exilic and the post-exilic literature. So so after Israel was once she's exiled and then and then during her exile and then after she begins to return from exile. And that's Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Um, okay. And that's that's how the Hebrew Bible groups those. Right? Daniel, uh, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And Chronicles finishes in our Bibles, Kings and Chronicles go together. But Chronicles, reading Chronicles right after you've read Kings is, is really rough because it says a lot of the same stuff. There's more of a Davidic focus in Chronicles, and, and that's, that's because there's more of a Messianic approach. But um, Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible is at the end of the Hebrew Bible. We have Malachi. They have Chronicles. Why? Well, it separates Kings and Chronicles, but more than that, the first word of the book of Chronicles is um, Adam. And then it finishes in, at the end of Second Chronicles with um, the exile and with uh, a king who's, who's uh, of Israel who in exile is, um, in a sense, there's a hint of a return from exile and of the Davidic line still existing. So there's a hint of promise. So what, it, what it's been called like a Bible in miniature, the book of Chronicles. So it starts with Adam, the first man, God's creation, and it ends with God's people in exile. So it gives you the whole sweep of everything that's just come before in one, in one book. And by the way, I say Chronicles instead of First and Second Chronicles because the Hebrew Bible groups Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. It just says, it just puts them all into one book. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, not, one in, not First and Second. So that's it. Um, I hope that flow helps you a little bit. And uh, the, re- the Read Scripture app uh, by the Bible Project, just go to the App Store and, and, and look for Read Scripture. And it, it, breaks, it breaks all that down really beautifully, and it has you read the Bible in a year in that order, and it embeds videos to help you, uh, animated videos that are super well done by a PhD in, um, in um, Semitics and, and, uh, and Hebrew, in Old Testament. Um, it, it, it embeds those videos to help tutor you and help guide you along the way and hold you by the hand as you walk through the Bible. Um, so it breaks down the Bible, Old and New Testament, into 16 big chunks, and, and it's just a beautiful layout. So read Scripture app by the Bible Project. Check that out. Um, okay, how old to read the Bible? I got I to gotta hurry with the rest. It's not hurry, but I got to speed up a little bit. Um, the, let's move to the, God, the New Testament. You have the Gospels. Let's think about the Gospels for a second. Don't think about the... So you have the Gospels and then the Book of Acts and then you have the Epistles and that's essentially it, right? That's the New Testament. Sort of very similar to, and not by accident, to the Old Testament in that in the Old Testament you have what? The foundation, the law, and then you have the prophets and then you have the writings. Um, and, and the foundation of the New Testament is, is the Gospels. And then you have the things that grow out of that, the Acts and the Epistles. So... But um, 
the Gospels, um, the Gospels are not biographies of Jesus. You know, let me, let me make that point briefly. Matthew, the first Gospel, starts off with a genealogy. Okay. And other things aside, at the end of the genealogy, it gives us Jesus. And Jesus came from not Joseph, but Mary, right? It gives us the line of Joseph, but then it leads us to Joseph, uh, you know, who was the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. And then the angel tells Joseph, you need to name this child Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In other words, the name Jesus, Yeshua, means Yahweh, or God, the covenant God of Israel, saves. So name him Jesus because that tells you what this guy is going to do. He is going to save his people from their sins, at which point we ask how, at which point we are answered, he has come to die. So from the get-go, from chapter 1 of the first gospel, from the first chapter of the gospels, we clearly see this Jesus has come for one purpose, one main purpose, certainly to deliver us, to save us, and to save us by dying on the cross. And that's the driver of the plot lines of the Gospels. They're not a full life of Jesus by any means. They give us the birth, and only two give us the birth, only Matthew and Luke. Mark and John do not give us a birth narrative at all. I mean, Mark starts with his ministry, essentially. Bam! Um, and John starts, you know, by going back to Genesis in the beginning was the word. And, um, and then he jumps straight to John the Baptist and bam, ministry. So what we get is mainly three years of the life of Jesus. And within that three years of the life of Jesus, and, and even when we get the birth, it's, hey, he's born to die. But within that three years of the life of Jesus, quickly we get to the fact that he has come to die. What's his first miracle in John? It's a miracle of blood, of, of wine, right? The wine is symbolizes the blood because it's not his hour yet, my hour. Whenever he talks about my hour in John, it's, he's saying, I'm, I've come to die. My hour is when the time's up, the reason I've come, to die on a cross as a substitute to save my people. So Matthew 16, Matthew has 28 chapters. In chapter 16 um, is when he he begins to openly reveal to his disciples. And then he starts to say to him over and over again, I must, I am going to Jerusalem to die. I must die. I have to die. That's how I'm going to save everybody. They don't ever get it. They don't understand it. It's not there because it's not the way they think about the Messiah. But he starts to tell them almost in the middle of the book, I'm, I'm going to die. And he starts to head toward Jerusalem and set his face like Flint toward Jerusalem. So he's just heading toward his death almost by the middle of the book. In Mark, it's even more stark. Mark 8, the literal middle of the book, that happens. This is called the hinge of the Gospels, by the way. It's Peter's confession of the Christ. And at that point, he starts to say, yes, I am the Christ. And you know what that means? It means that I'm going to die. What? Yes. That happens in Mark 8. In Mark 3, though, in Mark 3, the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark, it says that the Herodians and the Pharisees conspire as to how they're going to kill Jesus. So third chapter of Mark, we're already, we're already looking at how he's going to die. Luke chapter nine, that's the hinge. So Luke has 24 chapters. He's the longest gospel, not the most chapters, but he's the longest gospel. Um, by chapter nine out of 24, 
that's the hinge, the Peter's confession of the Christ. And Jesus starts to say, I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. But I'll rise. Don't worry. I'll rise. But I'm going to die. And then John 11, Lazarus uh, is raised and Jesus, his enemies conspire to kill him after they see that happen. Um, And I've already mentioned how as early as John 2 at the wedding at Cana, the first miracle, Jesus says, he mentions his hour, which is a reference to his death his coming death. So um, the Gospels are not biographies. They are uh, telling us that we need a Savior who has come to die in our place. Um, so read them that way, okay? Acts is, it's uh, sui generis. It's the only thing of its kind in the New Testament. It's not a Gospel. It's a continuation of the book of Luke because Luke wrote Acts, and it's what Jesus continued to do and to teach through his church, through his apostles in his church as people come to Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit and his kingdom starts to spread everywhere um, and go to the nations, as was his plan. But the book of Acts links the Gospels to the letters to the church. It's, it's the only window that we have into the early church. Here's not, I mean, the epistles give us that, but Acts is action. It's here's what the early church was doing. Here's how the kingdom of God's moving out through the church. Here's how the church is growing. Here's how it's being um, persecuted. The epistles are the rest of the scriptures. It's okay, now that the church is growing in this world that's hostile to Jesus and be in light of the gospels and what Jesus has come to do, he came to be born. He came to be born for us, to us, to live for us in our place, to die for us, to bring us back to God and to rise victorious over death and then to ascend um, into the gospels, early, early part of the book of Acts. So in light of all that, how do we then live? That's, that's what the epistles are, right? How do we live in light of who Christ is and what he's done and how God has used Jesus to bring us back to him? And that's the question that they're answering. How does the church, how does the body of Christ live on this earth in light of what he's done until he comes again? Um, and, and as such, the, all the epistles essentially start with, they, they move from indicative to imperative. So indicative is, Okay, here's what God has done in Christ. Here's how he's made us right with him through his blood, through his merits and not our, our merits received by faith. That's the indicative. The indicative is, indicative is a grammatical statement. It's, it's um, Johnny went to the store, period. It's just a fact. The fact is, here's what God has done for us in Christ. Now, the imperative is, okay, in light of that, here's the command, live this way, live this way. And Paul, for instance, in Romans, his magnum opus of theology, spends the first 11 chapters laying out the gospel. It's only in chapter 12 that he begins to say, okay, in light of all that, in light of that amazing gospel, uh, which he, he sort of rhapsodizes over in Romans eleven thirty three through 36, then in light of that, how do we then live? And he gives a bunch of practical. So in light of that, you know, live a life of service, um, pour your life out, help others, be hospitable, et cetera, et cetera. Tend to the poor. Um, if you get that reversed, you're, you're, t- you're dead in the water. You can't say, I have to do these things and then, and then I'll come to Jesus. No, Jesus came. He loved us when we were still his enemies. He saved us through no good of our own. It's a free gift. Now, in light of that, live this way. Indicative leads to imperative. That's the way all the epistles are structured, especially Paul's. Now, um, how do I read the Bible? I need to be briefer here. Um, how do I read the Bible? This is kind of another section as we've moved through sort of the sections of the Old and New Testament. Um, I want to read the Bible as saying one thing. 
because God is the author and he's driving his thesis point home through every page. Now, what I'm about to say to you is essentially just in four different ways, um, Jesus, Jesus, right? It's all driving us to Jesus. So even from Genesis chapter three, earlier than that, but very clearly in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, in the middle of the curse, Adam and Eve have just sinned and God is asking them questions to elicit their confession and to draw them back to him. And in the middle of his articulating the curse, he gives this promise. And it's a promise of the gospel. And he says, here's what I'm going to do to make everything right, to make everything sad come untrue. Here's what I'm going to do to defeat Satan and to do away with sin. And I'm going to do it at ultimate cost to myself. Now, he doesn't expound on all that. That's all packed into because of what I know and we know of what comes after that throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, that's all packed into this verse, though. It's Genesis 3.15, and, it's, and scholars refer to it as, or theologians, as the proto-evangelion, which means the first mention of the gospel. It's the first explicit mention of the gospel in, in the Bible. And those two lines uh, where God mentions there's going to be the enemy, the serpent, he's going to have children, and the woman, she's going to have a child, children who are going to lead to a child, a seed, who's going to crush the head of the serpent and is going to defeat the serpent and his children and evil and sin, and he's going to reverse the curse. Those two lines of the hatred that God puts between the serpent and the woman and their two um, lines of children radiate, those two lines radiate throughout the rest of the biblical story. You see them coming, repeating over and over and over and over again, and God keeps his line alive, leading us to Messiah. But the enemy is constantly at war with the line of the Messiah and constantly trying to extinguish that line. Think about Pharaoh. Um, you know, and then Herod repeats that when Jesus is born, right? So that's just one brief mention of that. That's the, so that's the Proto-Evangelion. The next sort of leading us to Jesus, re- read the Bible, is, is, is Jesus fulfilling it all. Um, is, you know, that, that needs to be your interpretive lens. Your, the, the fancy word is uh, the, your hermeneutic. Your interpretive lens for reading the whole scriptures needs to be that Jesus is the point. Now, this is mentioned by Jesus in the last chapter of Luke, Luke 24. This is mentioned, as I've already said, from John 5, 39 and 40, um, the end of John 5, where Jesus stands in front of the Pharisees and says, I'm the point of all of the scriptures. And if you miss me, you, you might as well not even read them, right? Because um, you can have the whole memorize, Bible memorized and go to hell. The point is coming into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, knowing him. Um, Matthew five seventeen, Jesus, at the beginning of his, the greatest sermon ever preached, Sermon on the Mount, says, don't think that I came to abolish the scriptures, but to fulfill them. And that word there is just the simple word for fill in Greek, not just, you know, in a, used by Jesus in a, in a heavy theological way, but like to fill a glass with liquid. And when you think about it that way, think about it as the Old Testament is the glass and Jesus is the liquid that fills the glass. In other words, what is a glass for? A glass is made is for one thing, to fill with liquid and to drink that liquid. That's what a glass exists for. In other words, what he's, what is, he's making a huge claim. The whole Old Testament, and what is the Old Testament? It's not just a story. It claims to be a history. It claims to be actually um, a history of God's involvement in space and time with making a people for himself, making all things and putting a people 
into his creation, them rebelling and him going after them and making a people for himself to be with them forever. And Jesus is saying, yeah, all that happened. All that exists for me. I give meaning to it. I'm the reason for it. What? Yeah, he's the point of the funnel. Everything, everything points us to him. So you need to read the Old Testament leaning forward into Jesus, anticipating Jesus. That's one of the things that reading the Bible in a year does is that it, you're, you're in the Old Testament and you begin to take the journey with Israel and you're leaning forward into Messiah. When is he going to come? We need him to come. We're lost in our sin. We're desperate. Is, it, is the Messiah Noah? No. Is the Messiah Abraham? No. Although the Messiah is going to come from him. No. Is it Adam? No. Is it, is it Noah? No. Is it Abraham? No. Is it Moses? No. Is it, is it David? No. Is it Solomon? No. You're, you're constantly disappointed, getting ever closer, and then eventually, Gospels, bam, here he comes, <clears throat> and we're ready for him. Um, <clears throat> the book of Hebrews is written in this way, sort of, right? Like, Jesus is the point of it all. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's, be- he's the point of the law. He's the point of the temple. He's the point of the sacrifice. He's the point of the priests. Another way to read it um, is... So we talked about the Proto-Evangelion, Genesis 3.15 talked about an interpretive lens, the hermeneutic, uh, is, a, is a mirror. The whole Bible is, a, is like a mirror. Um, the last chapters reflect the first chapters. So Genesis 1 through 3 and then the end of Revelation reflect uh, each other. So the, 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 there's a Hebrew literary device called a chiasm or a ring structure that this is. So history is a chiasm. In other words, what does that tell us? That God is sovereign. So let me explain what is that, what is that ring structure. Genesis 1 through 3, you have the creation of all things. Then you have a marriage in Genesis 2. And then in Genesis 3, you have the serpent and the fall, right? Let's, okay. So Revelation 18, 19, you have the serpents defeated. And then Revelation 20, 21, you have a wedding, the wedding feast of the lamb, the marriage supper of the lamb. And how he, he weds his, he marries his bride, the church. And then you have after that, the, recre- the new creation, the recreation of all things, the new creation. So you see how you go from the first chapter in the Bible's creation, so is the last chapter. The second, the second chapter in the Bible is a marriage, so is the second to last chapter of the Bible. The um, third chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3, is a serpent. He wins, seemingly. The third to last chapter of the Bible is the serpent loses. He's defeated by Christ. Do you see how not only is this cool and amazing artistically, it also tells us two things. One, God is the author of the Bible. And two, the Bible is a history. So God is the author of history. He actually is directing and foreordaining and crafting and choreographing everything. So what's the point? You can relax and trust God and flee to Christ. He's reigning over the flood. He has got you, brother, sister. Lastly, uh, and then a few resources. The mirror, um, the Bible is, uh, I already said that, the Bible is a mirror. The last thing is Genesis uh, 1-1 and John 1-1 is a picture of, I want you to read, I want you to read the part, each part of the Bible in light of the whole. So there's a sense in which you want to forget what you know when you read the Bible and just go, okay, use your imagination. I'm, act like I'm reading this for the first time. Don't read it bored because I already know what happens. Don't do that, right? Put yourself in it. Try to forget what you know in that sense. Enter into the story. Be surprised. But there's another sense in which you want to read the part in light of the whole. 
my, um, so read, in other words, read Genesis when you start, start reading the Bible again this year. Read Genesis 1 in light of John 1. Insert what you know from John now that the whole thing has played out. Well, it's still playing out, of course. Jesus hasn't returned, but you know what I'm saying. Now that Jesus has come, read that back into, read that understanding of Jesus back into Genesis 1. Understand that it was Jesus um, through whom the worlds were being spoken into being, right? And we're supposed to do it that way. Um, You know, Lord of the Rings. I'm reading Lord of the Rings with my son, Seth, and we get get to Bree, the inn at Bree, and um, Barleymon, Butterbur, and we meet Strider, and the reader, for the first time, Seth doesn't know who Strider is. He's a shifty, not shifty, he's a dark, suspicious character, and, and, and Butterbur is um, suspicious of him. And Of course, when, when I've, I've read Lord of the Rings many times, so when we get to Bree and the hobbits are in trouble and the ring race are bearing down upon them and we get to Strider, I'm comforted. I'm so glad to meet Strider and to see that he's here with us because I know that Strider is Aragorn and Aragorn is the king and the king is going to return and he's going to have the victory and he's going to defeat all the bad guys and he's going to reign and he's going to bring in the final age of Middle Earth and the age of men, the age of kings and the rightful king is going to take his throne and that's Strider. The first time reader does not know that, but I do and it makes it all the richer when I read of Strider for the first time in Brie. I'm enjoying it more than Seth because I have a thicker understanding of who he is. That's what we should do in reading um, Christ back into the Old Testament. Beautiful. Okay, now resources, and then I'm done. Um, just a few resources here on um, that will, can help you. So, and maybe I can post these somewhere, but some good tools, um, a good tra- get a hold of a good translation. The ESV is, I think, all around the best. Um, I didn't talk about genres because this is the first lecture and I just didn't have space for it. And, um, but as far as genres, reading the, different, reading the different parts of the Bible according to their genre or their type, is it poetry, is it prose, what type of prose, um, is it history, is it um, something else? So that's really important. Um, a good book to start with on that is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fee and Stewart, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. That's, that's a really good handbook um, that'll help you with the different genres of the Bible and reading them helpfully. And um, again, the, the Bible Project and the videos there really help with that. A more advanced book on poetry, on how to read Old Testament poetry and prose, um, is the author is Robert Alter. Now he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't believe the Bible is God's word. He's an unbelieving Jew, but his, his insight, his literary insights are phenomenal. Um, so read it with a big grain of salt. But, um, if you're interested in the next level, sort of intermediate advanced, I would say intermediate, um, book on that, Robert Alter, the art of biblical narrative. That's on, that's on the narrative, the prose, some of the prose sections. And then, um, and then he has a book on the poetry of the Bible as well. Um, the Art of Biblical Poetry, I believe it's called. So those are good. The narrative it was sort of the groundbreaking seminal work he wrote in 1981, I think. Um, so that's that. And let me see. 
the good the read scripture app I mentioned. If you there are lots of resources now that are free if you want to get into the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, so Step S T E P by Tyndale House is free, I think, and that's a piece of Bible software you can download that uh, will help you get into the original languages. The Blue Letter Bible, I think, does that as well. And of course, there's you can buy like Logos or Accordance software. But um, man, the if you it's really important to be able to when you study the Bible to be able to know how many not how often is this English word used. That's not as that's not as relevant. How often is this word used in the original in the Hebrew? Because an English word, the English word love could have many different translate, many different words behind it in the Hebrew or Greek. So how often is this word used? Because the Bible builds and to find out the first instance of that word in the Bible and then how it builds is, is pretty important when you get into scripture study. So like a Young's, a Young's concordance, um, I have my grandfather's old edition, so I don't know how much they cost. You could probably get one for 20 bucks or less. Um, but a Young's Concordance will literally, it'll give you the English word and then it'll give you, um, it'll break it down into the Hebrew and Greek too. So that's a really helpful tool. I like having, I have a bunch of software, but I like having um, hard copy stuff as well, paper and ink yeah, um, with certain things. And a concordance is a scholar's tool. A concordance, I'm not saying it's just for scholars, but it's the, it's the fundamental tool. It's, it's you know, um, a dictionary just is, or is full of suggestions. It's scholars telling you what they think this word means. But they have to go back to the concordance, and, and language is determined by, words are determined and their meanings are determined by the words around them. And that's what a concordance tells you is, where is this word used? In what contexts? And how often? And so you can actually trace the usage. It's more painstaking, but a concordance is a true scholar's tool. So a Young's concordance would be well, it's worth its weight in gold, in my opinion. Best Bible commentaries is another good tool that will give you sort of, it will rate all the, the best commentaries and it'll on each of the Bible books, Old Testament and New, and it'll tell you which ones to get. Um, if you're doing, if you're teaching scripture, if you're studying scripture, you know, just get the most highly rated or whatever, or talk to me after, afterwards, but after, after you look at bestbiblecommentaries.com. Um, but um, get, if you're teaching scriptures, you can maybe get one academic and one um, uh, practical pastoral. The ESV study Bible, I probably should have mentioned this first, is an amazing tool. I think it's the best study Bible out there. There are lots of good ones, um, and I won't, I won't enumerate the reasons and elucidate the reasons that I think that, but articles in the back, 150 pages worth, are worth the price of the book. Crossway is an amazing publisher. It's a great translation, the ESV, um, and the notes are by the best scholars in their field on different scholars for each book, So it's, and it's evangelical. It's a wonderful resource. Um, the Jesus Storybook Bible surprise it's a it's a great children's bible and it teaches you and your kids to read the bible um focused on jesus and how every story whispers his name so that's that's all i got for now i don't want to overwhelm you i probably already have god bless you